Today's sermon text is Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 976. Hear the word of the Lord. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, since in your mercy you reveal the mysteries of your will only to those who are humble and contrite in spirit, would you grant us humility and would you keep us from all worldly and fleshly wisdom this morning? And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week at our home fellowship, we were talking with some friends just about where they were going. They're coming up on their 10-year anniversary. We were asking them if they had plans where they might be going and uh, reflected back on Laura and I's own 10-year anniversary, and when we when we planned where we might go for 10 years, we had grand schemes. We thought we'd go to Hawaii; it'd be great. Uh, but small kids and money means that Hawaii is tough to make happen. So we decided to go to what is one of my favorite cities to visit, and it's Washington D.C. Now I love the history of the place. I love walking around and seeing monuments all over the city. Uh, if you go to the to the National Mall. They're kind of at the Capitol, in the, in the shadow of the Capitol. You can walk from one world-class museum in the Smithsonian Institute to another right next door and then to another right next door and do that for days on end. Uh, and it's free. So that was where we went for our – the getting there is not free, but the Smithsonian is free. So we went there for our 10-year anniversary. You, you can go see the uh, a world-class piece of art in the National Art Museum. You can go across the mall and go see an Apollo capsule that was flown into space and parachuted back down in the National Air and Space Museum. You can go see shoes worn and signed by Michael Jordan, the original Air Jordans themselves in the National Museum of African American History. But the most popular museum by far, just according to the Smithsonian's own records, is the the National Museum of Natural History. It's actually twice as popular as the next most popular museum. It's huge. It's uh, got about four million visitors a year. And if you if you go to the second floor of the museum, there's an entire wing that's dedicated to gems and geology. You can walk through and take a, a tour guide with you, and they'll they'll stop and point out uh, some of the the things like a, a big geode. And say, look how amazing this is. Emeralds, rubies. Things pulled from the depths of the earth. But it's, it's really not complete. And the way that, that your tour might go is you're going to circle around this whole hall. And you, you get to the, the end. 
and you get to what is the centerpiece of the collection, the thing that a lot of people are there to see. At the very end, you step into a room, and there's, there's, uh, there's some displays on the side, on the walls you can go look at, but in the middle, there's really there's one thing. Behind three inches of bulletproof glass and rotating on a small cylinder is the Hope Diamond. The Hope Diamond is about 45 carats. Kids, if you don't know how big that is, it's real big. You can go ask somebody to see their diamond and ask how big it is. It's not 45 carats. It's 45 carats. It's blue-hued. And it's estimated to be worth somewhere between 200 and $350 million. It is the centerpiece of the museum. It is the most visited exhibit at the Smithsonian. Well, this morning, as we jump back into Paul's long blessing that he's been giving to God from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, you can think of us like tourists winding our way through the gallery of salvation history. And Paul, speaking through the Holy Spirit, he's an expert tour guide. So even last week, as we stopped and we spent time looking in verses 4 through 6, Paul was just pointing out marveling, making us wonder in amazement at God's good grace in choosing us before the foundation of the world by grace, what the Father has done there. But today, he is walking us into, I think, the centerpiece, into the kind of the climax, the the top point of this praise to the Lord. And what is ultimately at the center of God's plan. This is all part of Paul's long praise to God. But but today we pause. And we're going to praise the Son. For being the center of our redemption. And the center of God's plan. We're going to stop and praise the Son for being the center of our redemption. And the center of God's plan for all of human history. I'm really just taking that idea. And going to break that out on the, on your note sheet. If you've got one of those on, on the way in, you'll see that we're just gonna kinda break that out into two main points. Christ as the foundation of our redemption. And then Christ as the fulfillment of God's plan. And as I've been preparing, as I've been thinking through this text and praying for you, my, my prayer for you, for those who are here, is that if there is anything that you look at, And say that your life is centered upon anything other than Christ. And we would be made aware of that today. And we would, in seeing Christ, put all of our trust and find our joy in Him. You'll remember last week, again, just kind of catch you up to speed, we talked about this blessing from 3 to 14 and we paused at 4 through 6. We said that we were praising God because of His gracious choice to adopt us as sons and daughters into his family through Christ. Now, at the very beginning of verse 7 that Lindsay read for us, you see this little phrase, in him. That actually shows up a few times throughout the passage. Actually, shows up several times. But it's a good marker for us to say we've turned and gone to look at something kind of new. It's not totally new, but you can think again. Just use this metaphor of a diamond. Okay, so last week, Paul was holding up our salvation for us. We're looking at this diamond that Paul is holding up to the light. He's saying, look at our salvation, how God chose us, and he has adopted us into his family. And he's just going to kind of turn that diamond and say, okay, same diamond, but look at it this way. And look at what the Son has done for us in redeeming us. And there's two kind of changes that we see happening in this text and going from 4 to 6 to 7 through 10. Two little shifts that I just want to point out at the beginning. One is, last week, 
what we were talking about, there's this phrase in there, before the foundation of the world. We're looking at God's purposes in eternity past, before any of us were ever here. What has God planned and purpose? And today we're looking at something that has happened in history. How God brought that plan to fruition in Christ. And that's the second shift that we see. Last week we spent our time thinking through the grace that the Father has shown us. That God the Father has done in choosing and adopting us into his family. And then today the, the slight twist is we're going to spend our time focused solely and only upon the Son. Upon what the Son has done for us in redemption. And so we see in verses 7 through 8, kind of this first point, the beauty of Christ. The foundation of our redemption. Okay, so look with me at verses 7 through the first half of verse 8. In Him, that's in Christ and the Beloved, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. This is in many ways the heart of the gospel itself. That's fun. Sorry, we'll keep going. This is the very heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to, we want to proclaim this hope to our every week at this church. Joe, I'm sorry, man. That one's on me. Amen. All right. If you thought you were getting a perfect pastor, the answer is no. Okay. All right. So Christ, the foundation of our redemption. We, we are at the heart of the gospel. This is the good news we hope to proclaim every single week or sing from our phones even when we're not meaning to. And there are really, so we look at verses 7 through 8, there are three phrases that I think open this up for us. Okay, three things that we see happening in uh, this first few, uh, first section that kind of play out the gospel story for us in redemption. Okay, so the first phrase we're going to look at is forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness of our trespasses. And in that little phrase, what we should see and hear is our great need. We have great need. Okay, so the good news of the gospel, the hope that we proclaim, really is only hope if there is some bad news lying behind that. Okay, so if I'm walking along the street and someone just walks up to me randomly and says, Brother, you're healed. I'm going to say, from what? You're crazy. But if somebody walks up to someone who, who has a debilitating disease and says something like that, they may hear that very differently. They may hear that indeed as good news that rings true. And so the, the Bible wants to convince us. We need to be see that there is need for every single one of us. Now, convincing people that there is something wrong and broken in the world, that, that's really easy. That's a pretty simple task. Okay, you have probably clicked on a news article this week, or gone on any type of social media, or just driven around your neighborhood, and you can look around very simply and say the world is not as it should be. Everybody will agree with you. 
We may be able to even say, you know what, you're not like you're supposed to be. And, and that's true. We can, we can say there's, my health is not like I would like it to be. Or I've got this habit that I'm trying to break. Or there's this skill that I, I want to accomplish, but I've just not been able to. Getting people there, that's, that's not that difficult. But the Bible is more personal than that. What the Bible is saying is deeper and perhaps more difficult for people to accept. It's not that we just have bad habits. It's not just that we are broken. The problem is even much deeper than that we feel guilty. Right? It's, the problem is not that you feel guilty. The problem is that we are guilty. That we have trespassed against a perfectly holy God. And maybe even that word trespass here is kind of helpful. I, I know people for whom they say, I, I just don't feel much guilt for most of what I do. Uh, I think the word trespass here just helped me and maybe it'll help you thinking about not just feeling guilty, but actually being guilty. Okay, so if you go hiking in, in Oak Mountain and you decide, I'm going to kind of go off trail here for a little bit, you can go for a little ways and, and let's just say you hike for a few miles. There's, there's, it's such that you could end up where somebody is just walking towards you and they might look at you and say, hey, you're trespassing. You're on my property now. And you could look around and say, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, these woods look all the same. I don't feel like I've trespassed. But if that guy decided to press charges and take you to a court of law, does feeling that you didn't trespass hold up? Not, not at all. Friends, there is a line from which you've gone from innocent to from not trespassing to trespassing. And that will not hold up. It doesn't matter whether you feel guilty or not. We stand guilty. And the same is true for you and I. Friends, it's not just that we feel that we have done wrong things, but that we have actually done wrong. We have actually committed trespasses against a God who is perfectly holy and just. David Burnett mentioned this quote last week in core training, uh, but we were talking about the doctrine of humankind and of man, but I thought it was helpful just thinking about this text even this morning. Francis Schaeffer, he was a 20th century theologian, and he was once asked by someone, what would you do if you had like an hour sitting down on a train and there was a modern man in front of you and you wanted to talk about the gospel? You have an hour. Just help us think through what you're going to say in that hour. And his response is there on your note sheet is this. I've said over and over, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma. That he is morally dead. Then I take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without, without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt feelings in the presence of God. Friends, have you ever told a lie? Uh, kids, have you, I see a hand, thank you. Uh, kids, have you ever pushed a, your brother or sister when you out of anger? Or just talked back to your mom or dad when you were upset? Have you ever talked badly about someone behind their back? We could do this pretty painful exercise for hours upon end. And sooner or later, everyone will come to say, that they have at times done something that they know is wrong. 
That they have done something that we know deep inside. Even if, I would say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, it probably doesn't take much searching to say, there is something that I can point to and I know that thing is wrong. And I should not have done it. We are all, every one of us, guilty of trespasses. And the weight of scripture in our own experience is that we have trespassed against God. So in that phrase, forgiveness of our trespasses, we see we have great need. But thankfully, the second phrase moves us from our great need to God's great plan, his solution for our need. And that's in those first words you see in verse 7. In him, we have redemption. Okay, redemption refers to releasing someone from imprisonment or slavery, paying a ransom to buy someone back from captivity. And this would have been common practice. The, the Christians in Ephesus, they would understand this idea. Because they, they were walking around in the marketplace and they could have seen people who were in debt and had to sell themselves into slavery. They could go see family members and others come and buy them back out of slavery. Say, we want him back. We're willing to pay the debt that he owes so that he can belong back to us. Or for those who were familiar with the Old Testament, the language of redemption just flows all throughout the Old Testament. You think even back uh, a few months, think back, or not a few months, think back to February. when We were talking in the book of Ruth and looking at the idea of a kinsman redeemer, how Boaz is buying back the field, the property for, uh, for, for Ruth and for Naomi. But the, the, really the, the primary place where you see redemption playing out, the, the crowning jewel of redemption in the Old Testament is in the exodus from, from Egypt. Remember the people were slaves in Egypt for 400 years and then in the fullness of time, in God's timing, God brings Moses and raises up a redeemer. He does plagues and drives the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt rather. And just, I wanted to show this in this, this one paragraph, this one uh, phrase from Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. Hear just even how this echoes back into Ephesians 1. Throughout the Old Testament, as people look back at the Exodus, they say this was God redeeming his people. This is his grace. God chose you to buy you back. So here, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. The exodus throughout the Old Testament stands as the primary work where people look back and say, we've been redeemed. God has done a mighty work and it cost greatly for him to bring us out. But in comparison to what we see here in Christ, the Exodus is an appetizer. It's just a small little taste of the amazing redemption that we find in the New Testament, we find in Jesus. Egypt was tenacious. In Pharaoh's grasp, the way that he says, I'm not going to let the people of Israel go. He was, he was tenacious, he was strong, but the hold of sin On all of humanity is stronger still. All humans born in Adam are bound to sin. Our enemy is no Pharaoh on the Nile. Our chains we made with our own hands. And the good news of the gospel is that God is rich in grace. And that he did not leave us in our sin. 
And brother and sister, we should marvel at that. We are not. God is not in our debt. He does not owe us anything. Like Corey said earlier, he gave us his grace. And the text says that it's not that he is just has a, a little bit and just enough grace to get by, but he is rich in grace. And he's not just a miser of that grace. He's not someone who is kind of gracious. He lavishes it upon his people. He pours it out. It overflows the banks of what we say even makes sense. So that the people that you look at and say, that person has no chance of being redeemed. In Christ, he says, yes, he does. God is rich in grace and lavishes it upon his people. And the most lavish display of his grace is seen in the third phrase that we should pay attention to. So following the announcement of our redemption, God has redeemed us. He's ransomed us. Paul goes on to tell us the price of our redemption. Through his blood. Through the blood of Jesus. And we see here Christ's great price. Hebrews, we read earlier, but a little bit earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews 9.22, we're told that under the law, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, you see birds and lambs, and even if you could afford it, something as expensive as a bull being brought to the temple and slaughtered. And the blood of those animals was poured upon the altar, it was sprinkled upon those who brought those sacrifices. God was teaching his people, teaching us even, that all along, sin deserves death. And that we need to have a substitute to pay for our sin. Blood will be shed for sin, and will it be our blood or the blood of another? But the price of all of those bulls, all of those goats, you could add all of them up. And they would not come close to the price That God says, in Christ, he has paid for us. In fact, looking back at the Old Testament sacrifices, the author of Hebrews later says, it's actually impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those sacrifices themselves, they were signs and pointers. They were pointing to something much more costly. Our redemption, brothers and sisters, required the very death of God, the Son, Jesus, the Son of God. And if we talked earlier that sin is universal, that it affects every person, what we see here is that our redemption and the invaluable cost of it should clearly help us see the weight of our sin. It's not just that sin affects every one of us, it's that every one of our sins is weighty. Our sin, even the smallest of sins, is such an offense that we could not buy our way back to God. In the classic hymn, Rock of Ages, the the writer puts it this way. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. We can't do enough works. You can't do enough good stuff. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. We can't have enough sorrow or just enough good feelings. I'm going to do so much good for Jesus. That won't atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. You can work tirelessly. 
And you can cry, weep endlessly to the end of your days, but your works and even your great feelings don't put a dent in the debt that we owe because of the weight of our sin. And that's the true, that's, that's true whether you are guilty of what you may call a big sin, something you say, I'm not sure if God could forgive this, or if you just say, like, my sins are little sins, they're small little things. Over the past couple of weeks, the elders have been doing membership interviews with uh, 26 incoming members here at Philadelphia, and I'll be, I, I love doing membership interviews. Membership interviews are like one of the greatest joys as a pastor that I, I love doing. Uh, getting to hear how the Lord saved someone, brought them into uh, to, uh, to know the Lord, to hear their articulation, how they, uh, what does the gospel say, and just revel in the goodness of the gospel, to see what God's done in their lives. And this is, this is a total sidebar application, specifically if you're here at Philadelphia Baptist Church. I know that many of us are still getting to know each other, old and new. We're asking questions like, where do you work? Where are you from? What's your fa- tell me about your family. Let me just put a, a question in your tool belt. How did you come to be a Christian? How were you saved? I'd love for you to ask. I'd love for you to hear the stories of how each other came to know the Lord. And I think you'll be encouraged by that throughout this. So, sidebar application. Do that. Back to this. We, we in these testimonies, what we hear is a variety of stories. Okay, so we we hear people who say, you know, I was saved. From a sin that I was so just entrenched in my sin, I didn't know if I would ever be able to be brought back. I thought at one point that God could not redeem me. I have a friend, Dennis, who his, his story is that he went from a lifestyle addicted to illicit substances and from rebellion against God. And he was brought to the end of himself and God saved him. He would say, we would look at the outside and we say, he would say from big sins. It was these big things that, that God covered over in the blood of Jesus. Uh, one of the, the testimonies that you'll hear, hopefully get an email about these, this in the next week or two is from Lauren Dunham, who is joining the church. And if you read Lauren's testimony, you say like, look at all those little sins. What a boring testimony. But I think Lauren puts this so well, and I asked her permission to use this as well. So here's just some of Lauren's testimony. As the daughter of a Southern Baptist minister, I grew up at church. So kids, Lauren has a testimony that may even sound like some of yours. From my earliest memory, I remember my mom and dad teaching me God's love for me, and they displayed that love so clearly in our home. But I knew at the early age of seven that I was a sinner. And the only way to have a relationship with Jesus was to ask his forgiveness of my sins. At that age, the sins I recognized in my life were not obeying my parents, getting mad at my brother, and being selfish. But I knew that even as good as I tried to be, I could never be perfect. But Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross for me. He took my place on the cross so I could live with him forever in heaven. Here's the point. Regardless of whether your sins feel like they are the big sins. One that Corey said, I'm not sure. You may be here and you say, uh, grace is hard for me to understand because I don't know if God can forgive this type of sin. If that's your story, or if your story is you have all of these little things like Lauren, every single sin is an offense against a perfectly holy God. And there is in fact that hierarchy that we have in our minds of big sins and little sins. It doesn't exist when it comes to what it takes to be redeemed. James 2 tells us whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. 
There is no way to be redeemed. There is no way to be redeemed by anything except by the death of Jesus in our place. That does not matter whether your sin is great or small. And when we see, when we properly see the immense weight of our sin and the great price of redemption that was needed to redeem us, and when you realize that God was willing on your behalf to pay that price, to purchase his people, who can help but be amazed by the great grace that God has shown to us. I was reading Luke 7 and was reminded of this this week. This, par- this story in Luke 7, Jesus is eating in the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And he walks in, he's eating with these Pharisees. But when, when he's eating, the, a woman walks into the house and falls down at the feet of Jesus. And she begins weeping at his feet. And the text says that he's, she's drying his feet with her tears, wetting, wetting it with her tears and then drying it with her hair. Pours expensive ointment on her feet. And Simon, the, the host, this Pharisee, he kind of says to himself over to the side, you know, if, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, then, then I'd know he was a prophet. He's kind of implying if he knew how great a sinner this woman was, he would, he would not want her touching even his feet. And then Jesus looks at Simon and tells him this little parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Brothers and sisters, your sins and mine, they are weighty. And I don't want to tell you that just to bring you down. I want to tell you that because you and I have been forgiven much. And a great price was paid for that. And does our love and our affection for our Savior reflect that reality? Does our worship of the risen and reigning Christ look like worship given from those who were snatched by grace from the pit of hell? Or does it look like a casual shrug of our shoulders? Christian, do you find that your heart maybe has grown cold to the things of the Lord? Maybe it's a season where reading his word and prayer and fellowship with his saints, it feels like the things that used to bring you great joy, it's just not doing it anymore. I think one possible remedy is to look at the blood of Jesus that was, it took to redeem you from sin. And that remembering the weight of our sin would help us to see the grace of God and the price that was paid for us. And draw you back into amazement of what God has done for you in Christ. And if you're here today and you would say that you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you're visiting with us. 
We're so glad that you're here and that you may be here hearing the good news for the first time. You may be hearing this for the thousandth time. And I know that the reality of the depth of our sin can be a difficult reality to hear, to even apply. But we hope that in seeing the bad news of your sin, that you would ultimately see the good news of Christ. That you would want to be redeemed by trusting in his death for you. And we want you to know that that is held out for you. That the price has been paid. And if you say, I've got to go go pay some price myself, we would say, that's not true. Jesus has done it for you. And if you want to know what that means and what that looks like, I would love to talk with you after the service. You can find Corey after the service. Find any Christian here. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to walk with Christ, to be redeemed by his blood. Friends, our, our sermons, our Bible reading, we all of this, we will never really reach the bottom of God's great love for us. We can explore it throughout every sermon until he returns, but we will never see the bottom. And we should always be amazed at the great cost that Christ has paid to redeem a people for himself. Now, our, our redemption by the blood of Christ, this, what we have seen, is the very heart of the gospel. It is the crowning jewel. It's also, if you want to change metaphors, it's like the tip of an arrow. It's the thing that many times, that's the thing that you see, what God has done for you. And God uses that to pierce your heart, to know that you need someone, you need grace. But as, as that is pierced, as you start looking back, you actually see that God has been doing a work pointing to Christ that goes much beyond what happened at the cross. Paul steps back actually in verses 9 to 10 to show that there is an even bigger picture that opens up for us. So not only is Christ the foundation for our redemption, Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of all of God's plan from beginning to end. Christ, the fulfillment of God's plan. Look with me at verses 8 to the second half of verse 8 through verse 10. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. God has done this according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So at the cross of Christ, we are redeemed. We are forgiven. And that's what verses 7 and 8 were all about. But here, Paul says that the cross of Christ... It's just a small picture of what God has been doing in all of history. It's the most important picture, but it shows, it kind of lifts back the curtain so that we can see what God has been unfolding from beginning to end. And this is the mystery that we read about, the mystery of God's will. Something that was hidden for a time, something that we couldn't see clearly, but now is made known in Christ. Elsewhere, Paul describes this like having a veil over your face. So maybe you're, you, that kind of rings a bell, that 2 Corinthians 3. He would say that before the cross, or even today, those who go back and maybe read the Old Testament without understanding the work of Christ, it's like reading the Bible and trying to understand that with, with a veil. Things are a little bit blurry. Things are hard to bring into focus. But with the, with the cross, with Christ, that veil has been lifted, and the mystery of God's purposes that were once hidden are now seen more clearly. And what we see is just like the gospel contours of being in need and Christ being the center and then being united in Christ. That same story is happening throughout all of history. And so we see first a world fractured in rebellion. 
Sin did not alienate us only from God. That is the chief thing it did. Our biggest need is that we were alienated from God, but it also broke everything around us. Go back in, in uh, the book of Genesis. You see that relationships between people, between Adam and Eve, are broken. The first sin, like chapter 4, things turn to murder immediately. Our relationships with one another are broken. Beyond that, the relationship with creation. All of creation is broken. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth, it says in Romans 8. So the thorns and thistles that are growing in your garden, the tsunami that you read about that happens across the world, those are symptoms of a world that's been fractured because of rebellion against God. But God's plan from the very beginning, even in Genesis 3, he tells us that he is working so the world would not forever exist like that. He's a master architect. And in Genesis 3.15, he says, I have a plan. And then he is slowly kind of unfolding that plan throughout the Old Testament. And in Christ, he pulls back the curtain so that we see it clearly. And we see that Christ is at the center of God's plan for all of human history. All of God's purposes hang together on Christ. He is the cornerstone of God's plan to restore creation. All of the promises are yes and amen in him. So again, if you were here in February and you heard this sermon series on Ruth, uh, it may sometimes surprise you that in a sermon series on Ruth, Corey and David talk so much about Jesus. Jesus, if you read the book of Ruth, his name does not appear there one time. But we talk about Christ so often in that book and throughout the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath, the story of Jonah and the whale, the things that you grew up in thinking these are wonderful, nice moral tales, we would tell you that those are not the point. The morality in those tales is not the foundation. The foundation is found in Jesus. And for us to preach and to teach and to read our Bibles, even for us to teach our kids on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights or in our homes, for us to teach and to say that the point is that we should be moral. We should be good boys and girls. That is to read with a veil over our face. It is to read the Bible without forgetting that the center, the thing it is pointing to, that God is pointing it to, is Christ. And so parents, when you read the Bible or tell a good Bible story in your home, it's good, it's fine to say, see how brave David was. See how courageous he was. And the Bible tells us over and over, do not fear, do not be terrified of them. That's good. Don't leave off that David is ultimately pointing us to the true and greater David. That these stories are not just meant to teach us to be holy, but to point us to the one who is himself holy. The perfect embodiment of this. When you have a conversation with your neighbor about marriage, uh, or maybe a coworker, someone who's, who doesn't even share your view of marriage. Someone who says, uh, you would say, I think marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. You can disagree with them and, and talk with them about the disagreements you have, but maybe take the next step that Paul does later in Ephesians and says, the reason this matters is not because I'm told that it matters by a political party or by my heritage. I'm told it matters because it's about Jesus, because it's about what Christ and his church have done. We're not just trying to explain our view because we think, right, we're, we're explaining and this matters because it's about the center, because it's about Christ. Well, friends, when you come to the end of your days, 
There's, there's great hope that's held out for us. The, the hope of eternity is great. And I know for some of you, even in the room, you have been thinking and reflecting on that in your own lives or in the lives of those that you love. And you may, may look and say, there's hope in being reunited with, with loved ones, with those who have gone before you, beloved spouses, children even. And that's true. But the hope that is held out, the final hope, the ultimate joy that we have is that we will stand perfected and we will stand gazing upon Christ. We will have him and hold that out, friends, as the hope in eternity. Not just that we will be redeemed and brought together with his people, but that we will see Christ for who he is. He, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the center of God's plan. He is the perfection of our hopes. He is the one we hold fast to. And what we finally see is that Christ is not just the center for the redeemed. He's not just the center for our church. Ultimately, the Bible tells us that all the world will be united to Christ because they will submit to him as the king of all creation. And so we see in the fullness of time that God is making a world united in submission to Christ, in submission to Christ. Now, at first glance, this idea here, there's this little phrase, God is intending to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And that can be a little odd, a little, make it maybe strike you a little funny. There are, in fact, some people who have tried to use this verse as if saying that we will be united to Christ and that he will be the savior of all people. That's what we call universalism. It doesn't matter what you believe, all people will go to heaven, be with Christ forever. But Paul here is not saying that. That is not the kind of unity that Paul has, a unity of Jesus as Savior of all. The union of all things that happens in the end, it will center on Jesus, but it will be centered on Jesus as the King of all. He will be King over all things and be seen and truly revealed to be King. Uh, Paul makes this clear further down. If you have your Bible open in Ephesians 1, just look a little bit further down in verse 20. And I think this is the reason, one of the reasons I think this is what Paul is talking about. Not Jesus as the Savior of everyone, but as the King of all of creation. In Ephesians 1, Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know the greatness of God's power. Verse 20, the greatness of God's power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Or think about the ending of one of the more famous passages of scripture, Philippians 2. It's there on your notes. This, this is a hymn to Jesus. At the very end of it, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King, to the glory of God the Father. God is orchestrating all of history so that in the fullness of time, on that last day, all of creation, those things in heaven... Those things on earth, they will unite, but they will be united in their confession. 
that Jesus is Lord. He is the center. And in our salvation, brothers and sisters, we should see that God has done a marvelous work. When we see Jesus for who he truly is, we should understand that we have come to see the very heart of the gospel. That he is the center of our lives. Our lives should not revolve around ourselves, but the gravitational center of your life and of mine, of all of history, is around Christ. And the question we have to answer today is have you built your hope? Have you built and staked your life upon him at the center? We will confess one day that he is the center of God's plan. Will you confess that today and worship him? Or will you confess that on the last day when it's too late? Trust in him, friends. He is our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for making your son Jesus the foundation upon our hope. We admit that if our hope was based on anything else, it is sinking sand. That we stand as your church upon Christ, the solid rock. And I do pray, Lord, that throughout our days you would help us. Lord, when we feel that our focus is shifting to other things, when we feel like we are centering around ourselves or anything else that would take that place, that you would pull us back by your grace that you've lavished upon us to see and worship Christ the King. We pray even now that our worship would be that. We pray that it would be received as grateful praise from those who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.